You're about to experience filling the air with words. Version 2.0, honoring Jane Shannon, who co-created this conversational podcast. Norman Sylvester, born in Bonita, Louisiana in 1945, Norman moved with his family to Portland when he was 12. During the past several decades, along with creating a Hall of Fame musical legacy, Norman has immersed himself in a number of very important social and political causes. Well, I believe in you. We're gonna make it through. I believe in you, Paul and Argan. We're gonna make it through, yeah. It's gonna be all right. It's gonna be all right. Well, I believe in you. Oh, Lord, we're gonna make it through. Well, I believe in you, Paul and Argan. Now, we're gonna make it through. Happy to be joined by Norman Sylvester, not only one of the greatest blues musicians in the world. In the world. <laughs> yeah, what the heck, right? Might as well be. What the, the heck? World. All right, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And Norman is perhaps more importantly, I don't know, a social activist and has been probably your whole life, right? Yes, yes, yes. Even uh, more so since I started working for that health care for all Oregon situation for the healthcare movement. So, you know, civil rights, um, I believe in all people having rights, uh, equality. You know, of course, from the Afro-American persuasion, I'm uh, biased, of course, that we need, have needed and still need and continue to need from when I was a young man. It's been a struggle, man. The struggle, as we know, is still continuing. Well, when you were growing up in Louisiana, I'm assuming that's the first time you ever heard of Juneteenth, right? True. And um, in those days, uh, when I was a young kid, um, the uh, most Afro-Americans, my uncles, uh, my dad, my mom, and grandparent, grandmom, I never knew either one of my grandfathers. But the Juneteenth was June-ish. Back in those days, they hadn't settled down on a specific day. So different parishes and other places would just be somewhere in June. You know, they do festivities like barbecues and stuff like that. There wasn't any parades that I attended. But in my school, Morehouse uh, School in Bastrop, Louisiana, there was always some special function, you know, at the school. We were doing special history things and art projects, you know. So it was a part of my youth. But most of it was the meaning of Juneteenth, which is freedom, you know, freedom, you're free. You know, I think that was more what they told me, you know, that was the day, you know, that it was announced officially in, in the state of Texas, you know, which was a little bit off the beaten path of uh, everything. And and I think that the celebration of that is just a celebration of freedom, you know. You know, we don't, I don't think we celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation or the 13th Amendment Day, you know, as a commemorative day, you know. But all those days, man, are to the African-American is a symbol of freedom. So if you look at Juneteenth, uh, and well, of course, you, of the 4th of July is Independence Day as well, but that one for Afro-Americans is huge, man, because freedom is one of the things that Martin Luther King was talking about, you know, continued, you know, let's really, let's show us how free we are. But 
just the initial word of freedom given to slaves in those days, man, that's what gives Juneteenth a meaning to me. Because the posture of African-American men and women back in those days were was a bent over posture. When I say a bent over posture, I mean they either picking cotton, they horn cotton, they, they're doing some kind of labor that's got you bent over. You know what I'm saying? So basically the uprightness of it, just like Darwin's theory of uh, relative of, of man becoming from the ape and standing up and walking straight. It was like that black people and African-American and slaves were always serving, bent over, working hard. You know, so just think about that. And you can just apply it to when blues players began to play blues, the early ones, you know, Lead Belly and all those people. Uh, they stood straight up to play those guitars and blow those harmonicas, and they had to have the airways clear to sing. Can you imagine the freedom that music gave them to sing standing at a straight posture and not rolled over at the shoulder, holding on to the reins of a mule behind a plow? or picking cotton, or picking this and picking that, or hoeing this, and you know, that whole thing. So that's kind of an overview that I would have for the posture of uh, uh, Afro-Americans. The word freedom to me means that at, at that time they were thinking about, but in a confused way of, of being able to walk straight in a path of their own. And although it wasn't an illusion, as it turned out, it, you know, it was a bright spot in the road. It's fascinating to me as a, you know, privileged white person, right, uh, where I grew up in New Jersey, I had never heard of Juneteenth. There was nothing in the history books. This whole concept, and I hate to admit this, is relatively new to me. Well, yeah, uh, what is it... Uh... I guess it's uh, observed in 46 or 50 states, uh, and we are blessed to have, uh, and you know, uh, I always use the word blessed, and you know, I, I was never really taught to believe in luck, you know, because luck, well, what is that? Um, we're blessed to have the Multnomah County decreeing that uh, it's a paid holiday. Last Friday, I believe they said that, and so that's a wonderful thing, you know, it just gives another strong foundation to the word. You know, that 40 acres in a mule, it never happened. But uh, Juneteenth uh, is a celebratory thing. And during the times that we have, we're going through now, um, a celebratory holiday is a good thing to have right at that particular, at this juncture, you know. Especially if you see it in Monoma County, you can get paid for it as well. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a welcome thing to see that they recognize that as being special. And I read somewhere today that there is a pretty large movement to make Juneteenth a national holiday as well. Yes, uh, it's petitions being put in for sure. Yeah, and that would be great. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea when when I read about it, I thought this it just doesn't even seem possible that it happened. It was a, a federal order that was read, read by uh, Gordon Granger a federal order, and he read it in Galveston, Texas on June 19, 1865. It was obviously something that was well-received by the African-American population there, but not by the slave owners. Right, and right. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Do you know much about that? Well, you know, I can, I can, 
I can give you an example of how that affected me personally as in, in reference to that. I came to Portland in 1957 to uh, integrated uh, school. And the, uh, the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. It didn't reach my hometown of, of Bastrop, Louisiana until 1970. Wow. So just like those governors and politicians that sort of drove, drug their feet there, those plantation owners and that stuff, they didn't, you know, because that was livelihood for their lifestyles, the textiles and the, the fruits and vegetables and the corn and the sugar cane. All that stuff had to be put on wagons and in, in trailers and uh, pulled by mules to the cotton gin and to this place and that place. And who was going to do that work? Those folks had just had been told that they was free. So, of course, they're going to drag these, you know. So, you know, that's, that's just uh, the, the way it was. And there was a sadness to that, you know. It's just like when the 13th Amendment was passed. It was, it was good that it was passed and said it's abolishing slavery. But it also had a deal in that if you were a criminal, you could be put back in servitude. So then you was put back in servitude for stealing a chicken or stealing an egg or walking uh, or, or eyeballing somebody, you know what I'm saying? So it was a tough time for freedom to be put out there and not happening. So, you know, it, it was, it was, you know, but the word freedom in the mind of the slave, I'm sure it was a, a jubilant thing, but the end result of it, as we know from history was that it didn't just happen. Right. Yeah. And that's the sad part. And that's about change. That's what we're going through right now. We're going through time for change. You know, if you look, look at the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, being in 1863, and then your civil rights thing coming 1963. You know what I'm saying? You know, and then on, in the 60s, when uh, the Voting Act and all of that was passed, that was the time when I think politicians were working across the aisle. Republicans and Democrats. It might not have been a lot of Republicans, but those few Republicans that voted to help LBJ and all those guys get that together, they work together. And that's what we need right now to make the change that we're looking for right now. We need some of the Republican side to say yes to what the Democrat who they, they consider as liberal, but we just need that kind of uh, leadership to make the changes. So we're still struggling for Juneteenth and the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment to be a real thing. And, you know, if you look and say, well, you guys got everything you want. When you got President Obama, you had everything you needed. Not so. You know, we still have a mountain to climb. You know, Dr. King said he'd been to the mountaintop and he's seen. He's, he had a vision. And we're still looking for that vision that Dr. King talked about you know, his dream, you know, but we're keeping the dream alive. We're keeping on struggling. And as you look at the streets that are out there, the people that are demonstrating now, you know, that's going to be demonstrating on Juneteenth, I'm sure. But what's really good for me to see is that the people that's um, screaming about police brutality and that kind of thing, the thousands of people that's out there, a lot of them are people that wouldn't have a problem if the police pull them over. The young people that probably wouldn't, wouldn't have be pulled over for just being out there. So that is really a wonderful thing to see the, the nation coming together for change. You know, the riots and all that stuff is just a byproduct of 
the struggle. And it's a sad thing to see. And I'm being 74, I hate to see uh, businesses destroyed in a community where you got to go to get your stuff and that kind of stuff. But as it comes across, that's a part of the struggle. And any struggle you've seen from the women's suffrage movement to the Teamsters or the, the labor movements, you know, axe handles across the head for, for, for maritime workers on the docks and stuff like that, going for labor laws and stuff like that, brutality and demonstration all went hand in hand. So I'm a one that I am not going to point fingers at people, but I'm, I'm happy that there's a notice of change and I'm just, you know, I want everybody to be safe, of course, but it's just uh, a, a time that people are going through now they need to see something different. We've kind of been here before, in a way. You mentioned the civil rights movement, and even going back to Juneteenth, there's been this struggle, and it hasn't just always been the African-American community, but it's certainly, in my lifetime, that's mostly what I've seen other than the Vietnam War stuff. Right. When you look back over what you've seen in your 74 years, do you feel like that the struggle has gotten more, ah, what's the word I'm looking for, has gotten more momentum? There has been um, a comfort uh, with the status quo of, there was nobody pushing to make a change and it just got out of hand. Dark-skinned people have always been feared as, have been feared like they're going to take over something. You know, your uh, people uh, that are afraid that are buying up the guns and the bullets and stuff like that for what's going to happen, who's coming to get them, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that when, uh, Afro-Americans are pulled over and stuff like that. There's a fear already that something is going to happen. So the adrenaline and the uh, lack of um, empathy and caring and the fact that there's total power over someone is misused a lot, man. You know, you got total power over me. Not really. If you're really uh, a peacemaker, you should be a peacemaker first. And then a militant soldier should not be a police officer. He shouldn't be a militant uh, guy, you know, with all the the weapons of war that um, a soldier would have in Iraq. You know what I'm saying? So those those are things that we uh, we're seeing. You know, it's just overexertion of power, and power seems to be the thing. Now, money and power is killing us right now, man. From the top, it's just power. Things being said and done because power has the power to do that and nobody's pulling the chain. You know, it's just like you've got a pit bull, man, and you got him on a long leash and you come into a crowd of people and you say, he's going to be all right. I'm going to just let him roam and bite, you know, just don't, you know, until he bite about 10, 12 people and then, you, then you're yanking on him. But I think that, you know, the chain has really uh, got a lot of slack in and somebody should be jerking on the power to be because we're, what we're in right now is a tug of war and the rope never have a lack of tension in it. Just when the rope seems like it's going to be loose and somebody's going to pull that little line across that line, everybody's pulling on that rope again. And we're on the losing end of that. You know, that's why I wrote songs like Redemption Time and Hard Times in the City 
and Peace Study Action, Marvin Gaye wrote um, uh, What's Going On, and Inner City, you know, all Curtis Mayfield singing People Get Ready, Chambers Brothers singing People Get Ready, We Shall Overcome. You know, we've been singing that song for a long time, We Shall Overcome, Someday. And I think folks right now saying someday it's not getting here quick enough. We need change, you know. So that's a lot of things we're seeing right now, man. And we do need the change. And that's what what's going on in the world today. Have you ever had the experience in your life of being pulled over for no reason by a police officer? I've had times that I have been pulled over and asked a question like, where are you going? You know, that's probably nothing to be, why are you worried about that? You know, where am I going? You know, and then I said, what was I doing? Uh, well, you was driving a little too close to the fog line on the road over there, you know. And fact was, I was eating grapes or, you know, having a snack and reached over to get a snack on my way home from a gig and I went over the line just a little bit. So, you know, I, I, I was never really thrown up against a car or whatever. I've never been in a police car uh, for any reason. I've been blessed, you know, to have that not happen. But I've had friends that told me stories and stuff like that. And I, and I know that it's, it's, it's just blatantly out there everywhere, man. When I would leave home when I was a kid, my parents would always give me precautions about law enforcement, what to do if I was pulled over, keep your hand on the steering wheel, answer when spoken to, don't, you know, and it's a shame that we got to tell our young men, my sons, my nephews, and I tell, we tell them the same thing, man. There's a, a, a way to be in that situation. This is what you do. Don't reach for anything, the glove box, the glove compartment, or up over the visor. Keep your hand until you are told to do so. That's just been trained in African-American men, man, to, to do that. Why should we be told that? I'm, I'm sure... Uh, folks of affluence don't tell their kids that. Right, right. You know, we're talking about just not African-American, but Hispanic and whatever, you know, the dark-skinned people on our, in our culture, man. We, are we um, such a threat, you know, that we have to be trained to, to know what to do in a situation like that? That's not right, you know. So thus the fight that we're having right now, the excessive, excessive violence, and um, over needless killings and stuff like that. So Juneteenth right now, if we go back to that, we're still struggling, man, for that, that full freedom, man, to, to go from point A to point B. And even more so nowadays, and we sh- should be less in the year 2020 from 1964. We shouldn't let this time go by without talking about music and the healing power of music and and the hope that music gives people so first let's talk about your music that relates to this whole conversation well i came up um when i started working at uh trucking company on swan island 1968 you know i was working a graveyard shift Uh, i got my uh socialist degree in heavy duty equipment mechanic uh and uh, arc welding and acetylene welding. So I thought I wanted to be a mechanic. So anyway, fast forward, I, I started reading about the Renaissance of Harlem and I fell in love with Langston Hughes. So he wrote about Harlem as he saw it and not as they portrayed it. So I just wanted to write about my life. So I started writing little things on worksheets and pieces of paper, sticking it in my coverall pocket. 
and I started writing about um, the Reaganomics and and the, the good days at the trucking company. And then when they start deregulating trucking and uh, everything would start going downhill, I wrote that stuff down. And that's how I came up with my first CD, Hard Times in the City, uh, On the Right Track. You know, um, Janice Scroggins helped me with all those songs and, you know, the late Janice Scroggins, may she rest in peace. Um, and I just um, started doing that thing I said earlier about keeping a journal. So all those poems ended up to be my future songs. And it's just about my life as it was coming through uh, the journey. And I wrote about, uh, you know, too many uh, days in the month at the end of the money. Uh, I'm tired of licking the frost and I want the whole damn cake, you know. I went to my job just the other day. I saw the time keep walking my way. A few steps behind him was my boss. They told me I had been laid off. It's hard times in the city. And I wrote that in the 60s. You know, and that, that, uh, that last verse in that song was, uh, uh, hijacks and terrorists are everywhere. Take a flight on the airplane if you dare. Buy yourself a ticket if you can. But your plane to Chicago might land in Iran. And that's when uh, hijacking first started back in those days. So I took those lyrics, you know, so, um, so I, that's how it affected my music is my life journey, what was going on on the political scene, what was going on around me. And I think a lot of songwriters take that and turn it into um, music and that's what helps us heal. Any other thing that, that you've recorded that you feel like is appropriate? Like redemption before? redemption time is good. Young for motherhood Senior citizen 
Oh, and another one is, um, and it's not, I know it's a pie in the sky song, but as um, a person that's been down a few times in life, you know, when parents pass and you have surgeries and you lose your job of 23 years and you're broke, go from good money to zero, those things that you have to go through to make yourself stand up tall again. I wrote a song called Look on the Bright Side. And on my uh, Family Affair CD, I, I, I let LaRonda Steele, who's just awesome, you know, she's fun, phenomenal. So I said, LaRonda, I want you to sing it and, and I want you to harmonize your own voice. So she sang Look on the Bright Side, harmonized her own voice in the chorus about four times. So I'd like to share that with you because when Janice played that song with me, she told me she loved that song because it helped her through some hard times and rough times in her life look on the bright side. So I'd like to share that with you. Look on the bright side And you can see for miles Green every day The problems of this world get you down. Keep your head held high, and you'll feel better. Keep right on stepping, put the pedal to the metal. Look on the bright side 
This is amazing conversation, Norman. Talk about the struggle and what it looks like now. You know what? Maybe what it feels like to you. What to me, it? as an uh, Afro-American, and um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm out here playing music. Uh, people, a lot of folks know me. But I know if I go to uh, Washington or go to another town in Oregon or whatever, I'm not Norman Sylvester, the guitar player, the blues man. I'm a black man in that area that they don't recognize. And that, uh, you know, my statue might give them fear if I'm not smiling or whatever. So I've had uh, people, when I get on an elevator, uh, I'll be standing on the elevator and come to a floor and I'm standing there and there's a lot of room for, say, a particular person or whatever. And they'll say, oh, I'll wait for the next one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, wait for the next one. So, you know, it's kind of like a little micro racism thing just happened there. But you said, really? With all this room, you know, but it's just that the way things are, you know. So as, you know, as an Afro-American man, I know it could be me on the ground. Or my sons, one of my sons and my nephew, you know. So that's uh, what I worry about, you know. Um, and I just, um, I see my son is uh, 20, going on 23, just graduated from uh, Pomona uh, with his um, bachelor's degree. And he went down to demonstrate as well because he was feeling he needed to be a part of it. And we thought he, he should. It's, it's his time to be out in the struggle, you know. So he went. And he felt better about going. You know, as long as he was home, not going, he was just absorbing all of the stuff. And once he got there with the people um, in the same spirit of uh, protest, he was good. You know, it, it, it's, it helped him. So as a father and a grandfather and an uncle and a brother to, you know, my sisters, I mean, I'm important to them. And I try to carry myself always in a calm and peaceful manner. You know, but uh, I could get pulled over and things could go really wrong in a heartbeat. And I, I just realized that it brings tears to my eyes to even think that I would have to say that. You know, that's that's what I worry about. You know, it could be me. And I just um, I feel for the Floyd family. I feel for the the Brooks family from uh, the other day. Uh, that situation that just just happened, you know, and you come on, really? Uh, we're going to do this kind of stuff, man? Uh, you know, the chief of police stepped down. Well, if things are out of control, it's time to go. If you can't, you, you don't have any control over the training of your, your officers. So 
I just don't think people should have to live in fear and the cautions that you give to your young people. You know, it's just that, um, like I say, with tears in my eyes, I watch this stuff, man. I just say, oh, my God, I'm going back. Uh, my my grandparents parents told me, my uncles told me about things that happened in the South back in those days in the 60s and the 50s, you know, and, you know, you could hear them talking in the other room and you couldn't hear everything. And then when they saw you, they stopped talking about what had happened because you knew somebody had passed because you'd heard that. But then the details were being talked about behind closed doors and children were supposed to be seen and not heard. So, but I was, you know, in a earshot of it. So I heard a little bit, but I was told, uh, you know, go back uh, where you were because they didn't want to give me all of that, you know. So I'm saddened to be in this situation and see this happening at my age in 2020, because I thought that we would be much farther than that. So that's why I see that reformism has been going on forever to reform police officers, and I don't think it's happened. So there's gotta be another approach from the administration all the way down, man, it's gotta be huge. You know what I'm saying? Um, there's been some, some steps made and there has been funds released for communities and stuff like that, which is a good start. But then you turn around and get two days ago, you got another murder, you know? So come on, that's just like pouring salt in the wound. You know what I'm saying? We just got to do better with, you know, police uh, enforcement. It's just got to change, man. Peacemakers, we need peace. Peacemakers instead of um, power, enforcers you know it's just too much it's too much for the average mind to think about and to go on and go through your daily life and see it and not carry the the weight on your back like a backpack for your family especially african-american people you know to carry that weight around thinking oh my god you know oh where's where's my son oh he's over here then the son's got to check in on the cell phone you know even the daughters you know what i'm saying it's just it's too, it's too going back too far for me. Uh, you know, when Dr. King and JFK and Robert, I just seen Robert Kennedy at Dawson Park over there on Williams Avenue. One of my friends played in a band that played on the flatbed truck, the late Frankie Redding, the funk master. He played on for um, the uh, rally. Robert Kennedy with Rosie Greer, who was a kind of like a friend, big old, made Bobby look like a midget, you know what I'm saying? And I, I remember that to that this day, man, and then turn right around, Bobby was gone. And those were the darkest, some of the darkest days of my life because the day after that, the communities, the African-American communities was in mourning, man, and everybody was just feeling hopeless. We made it through that and we're here, but that was because we continued with Dr. King's dream of, just keep moving forward, staying positive as we can and stay as peaceful as we can. But what we need now, and they say, well, you need this and this and this and this, but we need something to give us hope. We need hope again. You know, change, they say change, they say reform, they need this and this, but hope for a brighter future with less violence and the de-escalation de of a law enforcement that is over aggressive 
and militant at to the point of if you geared up for stuff and you get confused that your taser is your taser and your gun is your gun or your beanbag gun is your shotgun. Oh, I got the wrong gun. Oh, I meant to shoot the beanbag gun, but I shot the shotgun or, you know, it's, it's just, so that's training. Right. You know, it's like if you go going hunting and you out there and you're afraid you're going to shoot the first thing that moves. So you don't need to go hunting. You know, if you're out there afraid in the woods, you know, so that's all I'm saying is that psychologically we got to have training. They got to be screened. If you got somebody that's, that's doing wrong, send them to counseling. Okay. If they don't get it, put them on a the desk. It's a lot of stuff, but I, I just think we need hope, man. And, we, and what we see in the streets now with young people marching and laying down the Burnside Bridge, 8,000, 10,000 people. Come on, man. And a lot did, of those folks would ne never be challenged by a police officer. How did you feel when you saw that photograph? I cried, man. Tears in my eyes, man. Honestly, Burnside Bridge from one end to the other, man, folks laying down for this. Dude, that was powerful, man. The whole thing, you know, the marching all over that these young people are doing and uh, the mixture of cultures out there, multicultural uh, people, man. We're talking about folks that probably would be hiding from the ice, the, the immigration folks are out there, man. You know, it's just, it's got everybody out there. What I saw with George Floyd, I can't unsee. I can't unsee it, man. I mean, that will just last in my mind forever. And we can't unsee it. And then we turn around and have another one here just yesterday, and I, I can't unsee that either. Do you think that helps or, or hurts the cause to have these images out there? When I saw the George Floyd video, which I could only watch one time, Right. And that was enough. But of course, like every other tragedy, our media takes an image that's compelling and they keep running it over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, think of the World Trade Center is the one that always comes into my mind. And the George Floyd, do you think this media coverage, as intense as it is, do you think it helps or hurts the cause? I think it's oversaturation, honestly. And I love um, the fact that in America, we are, we see what's going on, but that particular footage to me, the nonchalantness of the, uh, the officer with his hand in his pocket and his Ray-Ban glasses, uh, uh, Tony Bahama, whatever kind of glasses he had on the top of his head and the, 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 the calm look on his face. I see that in my sleep. The majority of African Americans that see that, they see it when they close their eyes, you know, just can't unsee it. People are at um, a critical mass, a boiling point. With the pandemic, the COVID-19, the current three and a half years of chaos we've been going through, the division, that tug of war that we talked about, I talked about early, earlier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that tug of war, man, tension, 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 pull, pull, one way, pull, one way. Just when you think that thing is solved, and just when people think that that can't be solved, they'll throw another thing in the, in the, in the cycle. Okay, now today we're talking about that, but that thing we were talking about yesterday never got settled because we just did the magic trip of, of mirrors, mirrors, just, 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 just the shell game. 
Where's the P? Oh, it's there. No, it's not. Oh, just guess what? I'm I'm doing this now. Oh, this is what we got in the press conference today. Oh, oh my God. What about that? Man, it's been going on for three and a half years and then we get COVID, man. And I've been in my house for 80 plus days. All my gigs are canceled. And you know, I'm sitting here watching the news and uh, then all of a sudden the George Floyd thing happened. I was just, oh my God, and I was already stressed out. And I saw that and I've been sad ever since. Some days, man, I get up and I gotta really motivate myself to, to go pick up my guitar because you know, it just make you feel a little sad and you sit there and you ponder. You know, I've been writing stuff down, man, just to get it out of my head, you know. And I, I advise a lot of folks, man, to just keep a journal, man. Write what you're thinking in your mind. If you're depressed and you're really fighting it right now, write it down and, and write your congressman, congresswoman, congressperson, and express your feelings to them. Let them know, you know, because you're a constituent of theirs. Let them know what you, where you're coming from. If you want change, Whatever you want to just it's inundate them with letters. Have so many letters coming in there, man, that look like a game show. You know, just send them letters and emails. Just just speak up. Just the 10,000 people that was marching, send 10,000 letters and 10,000 emails for change. You know, can they shouldn't ignore the people. We need better health care, better schools, better infrastructure. It's just not right. And we are people around the globe uh, are, are demonstrating with us. How, how, how wonderful is that? I think there are really some signs that, you know, again, both of us have been through the 60s stuff. Right. And there are some signs to me that this is going to go beyond I'm seeing laws that are being passed. I mean, mm -hmm. here in Portland, I thought it was a pretty noble gesture, at least to me, that the white female police chief stepped down and said, I'm not cut out for this, and she appointed mm -hmm. an African-American man. I thought that was a really good start to something. I don't know. How would you feel about that? I thought it was good. I thought it was cool. I think um, I don't know much about the new chief, but – He's um, supposed to be a very learned um, criminologist, you know, kind of he's got the, the know-how. And I'm there, man, for whatever, you know, he does. And I think that that was a good um, handing off of the baton. Policing sometimes went away from the police officer in the community that mirrored the people that they're serving. You know what I'm saying? I Which do. would be really cool. You know, it, it would ease the tension. Because you know your people, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I look at him as being that person in uh, Portland to, to know if he needs to talk to me or anybody that I know about the history because he's from out of town. I'm happy to sit down with him and tell him about the history of Portland because that's what, you know, I do, man. I try to spread the history about this city because when I came here, man, it was booming with Afro-American community on Williams Avenue and Russell, man, everything happened. So, you know, uh, he, uh, he's um, at the helm now. And like I say, I'm happy to see that that was the first major step. And I thought she did well to uh, be honest enough to do that. NormanSylvester.com, Chief, if you're listening, 
Uh, you can <laughs> you can get a hold of Norman there, which I think would be a great idea. I mean, it's people like you in this community who are activated and are making a difference. Uh, I've known you like eight years now, and uh, the healthcare blues was a big deal. But every time something is coming up here, you step up just like you have for this interview. And I, I really appreciate that so much. And yeah, you know, neutrality, man, they say silence is, uh, is um, compliance. But I think that, you know, if you look at me and you hear what I'm saying, I'm saying that Dr. King imparted a, a, a wish of peaceful, uh, hopeful, and um, a dream that he had for the African-American and people of color, you know. So all I'm saying is that let's get back to that. Give us that. Give us that equality. Give us that fair treatment in, in the law enforcement area. You put some of that money that they're putting in a gear of warfare. You know, that's a lot of money. You know, the shields and the, the mace and the, the tear gas and all that stuff. I love the tear gas. I love the chokehold. You know, do all of that stuff, you know, and don't overreact. You know, it's just um, that's the hope we need, that there can be a change. But the hope starts with the people doing what they're doing now and the government doing something from the House of Representatives and the Senate. It all comes from the executive branch. It's got to trickle down, man, you know. It can't be like the the federal government said that the governors are in charge of the COVID reopening. You know, so if they fail, nobody they they to blame. I think that somebody up top has got to take that mantle for this whole thing that's been demonstrated police brutality and take that and make a change in Washington DC. The chain link fence around the 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 White House is not the answer. Communication right now from the heart. Everybody speaks from the heart. And if you are doing the marching right now and you're doing it from the heart, that means that you will be marching in your soul, making the right steps next year for the same cause. It won't be a fad and it won't be left to the side. And it won't be something that you're just doing this time. So if we got everybody's doing it from the heart, we have hope. We the people have hope. And we the people together are the strongest thing that our country have. And we the people that vote are the voices of that will put tear this thing down. Tear it down, man. If we the people can do it together like we're marching, it it it, it, it and nothing can stop us, man. It's just like a river running. What can you can't stop it, man. You can dam it up. But it better be a strong dam. It's gonna overflow. It's gonna water will go. We're gonna what did Bruce Lee say? Bruce Lee, I just watched his show, um, the story of his life, and he said, Be the water. Be the water. So we have to have that same fluidity in our approach to change. Be the water. And as obstacles come in front of us, we just do tributaries and we just kind of flow around it. And those tributaries of positive action will keep going, man. And you get up there, oh, wow, it's no longer a lake. It's just a, a stream, but it's still there. Let's be the water. We, the people, will be the water. 
and keep flowing for change, man. And we're going to be doing okay. I feel a song. There has to be a song. Norman, you've got to write a song called Be the Water, okay? This is a personal request because yeah, it's such let a beautiful, it it's a beautiful metaphor, really, when you think about it. It's like, because the water, if it's going really fast yeah. and there's a big rock in the, in the river or wherever it's, yeah. you know, going over, it's going to knock that rock over. It doesn't necessarily have to go around it, you know? There you go, there you go. Be the Water. I'm expecting that on your next album. Well, like I said, it's a Bruce Lee thing, man. It's the philosophy of his style toward martial arts. Yeah. And that's what, you know, the fluidity of movement, that, that fluidity is what we got to have as we go. Because there's going to be obstacles for this whole uh, reconstruction of our law enforcement and turning our things into peacemakers and people that care about their community. In other words, when you see me, and I'm a, I'm a black guy and I'm a little bit tall and I'm looking up and I'm not smiling. My, my face is not, you know, my teeth is not showing. I'm not a threat. I'm just not happy at that particular time. You know what I'm saying? So that just read, see which, use your eyes. They got to use the eyes and, you know, and use the training. So yeah, we the people can make a change. We got to vote. We got to reach across the aisle if you're politicians. And, you know, we're constituents, so that means that you're working for us. Work for the people. You know, just keep pounding. You know, the lobbies and people that, that's got the big money and, and try to take that tributary and put the dam in front of it, we got to flow around all of that stuff, man. You know what I'm saying? We got what Muhammad Ali said, dude, we got to stick and move, man. We got to keep, keep sticking and moving for positive life hope and for we the people to make it through the 2021 with the new landscape for the future man that's what i'm looking for man if i'm playing music it's gonna be one heck of a party man i'm gonna tell you <laughs> i'm ready i'm ready for a big party man i'm telling I you for bet freedom you're ready. Party, ready for hope i'm ready to you know to see the people get together and party and stuff like that but you know that's in its own time and i want to say everybody be safe and you know, we all want to get through this thing together. You know, because the boogie cat wants to be safe at 74. We want to get to 75. <laughs> <laughs> I can't thank you enough, Norman Sylvester. The Northwest boogie cat. I just always have to say meow meow when I do that. But brilliant conversation. I loved, I loved hearing your thoughts uh, about Juneteenth. It was just great and so thank you so much for spending time with me well we must say happy juneteenth to everyone have a wonderful juneteenth day you know and just just reflect on freedom
story that ain't never been told If you feel like I feel, baby You gotta let me know, yeah, yeah Let me know, baby Is that our party going on? Say yeah, yeah Is that our party going on, y'all? Yeah, yeah Oh, is our party going on? Yeah, yeah Is that our party going on? Yeah, yeah Is that our party going on When the boogie cat is in the house? You've been listening to Filling the Air with Words, version 2.0. Find us on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Twitter. Dedicated to the life and memory of our friend Jane Shannon.